Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Imagine realizing one day that being with people at the end of their lives is exactly what you want to do with your life. That's what happened for Oceana Sawyer as she sat with her father in the last moments of his life. From that experience, Oceana went on to obtain an end-of-life doula certification from both the University of Vermont and the Conscious Dying Institute. Oceana is a gifted storyteller who takes us through her earliest experience with end-of-life when she attended her grandfather's funeral to more recent encounters with personal and community grief during the COVID-19 pandemic. We also talk about the role of a death doula and what it means for end-of-life care to be rooted in Blackness. Oceana, thank you for joining me for Grief Out Loud. Listeners, this is take three, because we have had some significant technological challenges, but we think the third time's going to do the trick. So Oceana, thank you for your patience. <laughs> no worries. I'm just really glad to be here. And with all of these technical challenges, you know this is going to be an amazing conversation. So I'm here for it. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go with that, that reframe. I love it. Um, so I know we're going to talk a lot about your professional work as a death doula and the many experiences you've had with witnessing people at the end of their life, being present with them, supporting them, supporting their family. And I know many of us come to this work through personal experiences. So I'm wondering if you could share with us, you know, what was one of your earliest experiences in the realm of grief and death and dying? Well... As you well know now, <laughs> my very first memory of death, a funeral, was um, my grandfather's funeral, actually. And again, here's like an insider tip about black funerals. It's, it's a big, lavish thing. It's, it's very formal. There's flowers and music. It's huge, and everyone's dressed to the nines, of course. Now, this funeral took place in Ohio, and we grew up in California. So I actually did not have a relationship with my uh, maternal grandfather. How this event landed in my 12-year-old universe was, oh, we're going to Ohio again for like a family reunion kind of a thing. So... There I was um, at this funeral with my mother dressed to the nines, all of us, and she's introducing me to a distant relative. And I did what I had been trained to do in social circumstances like that because my mother, you know, being the only person who moved out of the state was some kind of like a to California with some sort of celebrity in the family. So there I was being introduced and my training, all my training was smile and say, I'm so pleased to meet you. So that's what I did. 
I smiled and I said, I am so pleased to meet you, at which point my mother pinched my arm so hard I can still feel it. <laughs> it was like, ah, and she said something very quickly and graciously to extricate herself from the situation. And she pulled me aside and said, what is wrong with you? Why are you smiling like that? Uh, you're at a funeral. This is your grandfather's funeral. You're supposed to be sad. So I don't know what I said to her at that point. Um, but she was done introducing me <laughs> to relatives, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. Because um, I, was, I of course, was mortified. I had missed a social cue. And this is an important point about the story, I think, which is there are social cues at these kinds of things. And very much like sex, you don't get the, the cues beforehand. You're expected to arrive at a funeral, like you arrive at sex, kind of already knowing how to do it, you know. It's supposed to come naturally. Well, it doesn't. And um, it doesn't because people don't actually really talk about death or funerals. And in fact, my mother, all that I saw from her in terms of a response to the death of her father was nothing but decorum. I did not see one tear. And the point of the story is that I think the more that we can actually talk to each other, especially in the realm of feelings, I think people especially treat children in a way that's not very realistic. Like they're trying to be strong for children and, you know, not, you know, be all boo-hooey and sad because they think it might make children feel bad or they won't be able to handle those emotions. When actually what's true is, I recall from my own experience as a child, just literally being confused. What am I supposed to be doing here? What's called for? And not seeing anybody doing anything that looked anything more than being socially civil um, to one another. That's what I thought it was until, you know, later in life. I'm just sitting here reflecting on, you know, when we get ready as kids to go to school or to camp or so many other experiences, there's so much more concrete information given to us. Like if you go to camp, there's a list, you know, supply list that you're supposed to have and what you're supposed to wear and what time things start and end. And for so many kids, like you said, they go to an end of life ritual, a memorial, a funeral. And it's just like you show up and you kind of get a little instruction on what to wear, but that's kind of it. There's not like what's going to happen and how you're supposed to act and why other people are acting the way they're acting. And it seems like you had a very classic experience as a young kid with that early early grief. And then, you know, later on in life, I know you've had more personal experiences with grief that have tied really directly to the work you do now as a death doula, which I'm realizing we should probably define for listeners what a death doula is. I wonder if we could take a moment, a little aside and just explain that. And then if you wouldn't mind sharing about some of the other ways that grief have have brought you to this work. A death doula is basically the person who um, shepherds or guides the person who is dying through the experience. Uh, a lot of it is about what finding out what the person wants and making sure that they get it, like they have the kind of death 
that they want to have in consideration of the family, of course, but mostly it's about following the person through their journey all the way until they're no longer able to speak for themselves and, and then they're dead. And then a little bit after that with arranging, helping to arrange the disposition of the body and a little bit of bereavement services for the family. Now, in the way I describe this, you might think that, well, isn't that what hospice does? And it's true. The doula becomes integral to actually the team of people caring for a person at the end of their life. So hospice's part is one piece of the team. Obviously, the the medical um, system is another part of the team, and the family system is another part of the, of the team, and possibly even a spiritual guide like a, a minister or a rabbi. What the doula does is sort of um, uh, floats, if you will, between all those teams, and so that the person has a coherent, cohesive experience and is never without care. So the doula fills in the gaps in care. So how I came to that, right? Is that where we're up to? (laughs) How I came to that was um, uh, witnessing my father's death in 2007. He had had um, the last 10 years of his life had been a lot of many strokes. He was partially paralyzed and um, then he fell and was taken to the hospital and it was discovered that he was actually having renal failure. They wanted to do a dialysis and to this diagnosis he responded, no, I'm done. I'm just going to party out. So when someone says, I'm just going to party out, to me that lands like an invitation to, oh, (laughs) we're going to party. Great. Well, flew to Atlanta from California to be with him in his final days, as did my brother and his wife. My goal in in going there was to see what is this mystery of death. Just a little side note, I do not think I went to a funeral uh, between the time I was in that one in Ohio when I was 12 Mm -hmm. and the time I arrived at my father's bedside. For me, it was almost like, yeah, no, I don't need that experience again. <laughs> I don't know what the rules are, <laughs> and I don't know these people anyway, uh, so I'm not going to pretend to be sad. So I actually did not go to another funeral. Uh, so when my father announced he was dying, this looked like a completely different experience, something more real and authentic, and I was interested in that. I wanted to be a part of it. So for five days, my father and I and my brother and his wife spent going through the process. And after about two days, my father was no longer able to speak. And so this is where my spiritual training kicked in. And I spent the next three days with him in like a kind of like a, a telepathic prayer, tracking him as much as I could and being in some kind of communication with him as he was going through the process. And I learned so much. 
I had the great honor of being with him when he took his last breath. My brother and his wife had needed a break by that point, by day five, and they went, ended up going to a mall. That's often the case that people and die as soon as a family kind of starts drifting away. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. And one of them is that people bring an energy and that life force energy, that worry energy, that whatever the energy is that people bring to these end of life circumstances is energy that the person who is dying has to wade through to get out of their body, you know, to end, you know, to, to leave this, this realm. So when they leave, that's actually kind of more open space. It's a lot, ah, it's almost, you can, I could almost feel him exhale. Like, oh, okay, I got some space now. And in response to that, I remember I just sort of like pulled back a little bit and just was more in observer mode. I started playing music. Up until then, he'd had the TV on the entire time. That's not unusual, by the way. Um, if a person was a TV watcher like my mother and father were from their generation of things, the hospice people will often just have TV on because they think that comforts them. My experience, though, is that it's distracting, interestingly enough. And so when you turn it off, there's like this free space then to move, like to move out in a way. So I turned the TV off. I started playing some music. And then the room filled up with this energy. It was palpable, Jana. I mean, just like palpable. And even with all of my spiritual training, I'm still a fairly logical person. I thought, no, this can't be happening. That would just be too cliche and woo-woo. So I tried to talk myself out of it for a while. And then I just, you know, I have to go with this because I don't have another explanation for it. And once I decided to go with it, I turned toward like this energy in a way and said, hello. And it was clear the response was these, it felt familiar. Like the response was love. It was, it was the best words I can use to describe it was, yeah, hi, how you doing girl? Yeah, this is our boy. We're going to take him. You're going to be fine. Well, you already know that. We know you know that. Okay. Well, we're, we're all here. Hey, Aunt May. <laughs> you know, it was like the room filled and, and it was like a party. It was like a party, actually. I never even came to that till now. Um, but yeah, it was like a party and it was, it was, it was this joy, like a, like a angelic, otherworldly kind of joy. It was nothing frivolous about it. It had the weight of history, the weight of lineage, this joy, you know, like, you probably haven't had this experience, but I have. When you go to church, when you go to black church, you know, the and the and the sisters are just wailing and singing in these deep voices. And the whole congregation is just 
got this whole like hum and wail and going and it's it's like a collective sound it's like a collective you're being held in a held in a blanket of sound that's so ancient and that feeling tone of that is what was in the room this like deep ancient ancestral joy and it blew my mind it just blew my mind uh i i'm in fact i'm kind of tearing up remembering it because that's what i was doing i started to cry not big because i didn't want to blow the experience but i was just like wow this is happening and um the music i was playing actually i was singing I played music and then I started singing a chant and that's when the ancestors showed up. And I realized I'm not going to be able to keep chanting like this. I'm going to need that music back. So I went to my car to get the CD of the chant I was singing and by the time I came back, my father, who had been head to toe in a blanket with his eyes closed, I came back in the room, his mouth was open, he was looking up at the ceiling with his eyes wide open and one of his arms had come out from underneath the blanket and was on top of the blanket. And that shocked me. And I went, oh. I was afraid he had died while I was gone because I knew that happened. And so I stopped breathing myself so I could hear him breathe because that's what happens. The breaths become longer. The inhales become longer. And you can go several seconds between inhales at the end, so I held my breath and I waited. And he took one more breath. It's like his chest lifted. And then that was it. And I, I waited still to see if he was gonna take another one, but I knew it was his last one because there was a, a light you can't see. It was like a diffuse, like, Sunlight, you can't actually see it, but it just sort of like filled the room. It got even thicker and then it kind of dissipated over about two minutes, a period of about maybe two minutes. Who knows? The first nurse did not arrive into the room until maybe a minute later, and I was at that point dialing, trying to get my brother back. I'm trying to dial on my, get my brother back on my cell phone. I'm dialing his number. It's already coded into my phone. I'm dialing. I'm hitting this button over and over. It's, I'm not getting a signal out. And I keep doing this because I'm, you know, obviously in shock. And finally, I break down because I can't make get this call out. And the nurse has come in to take his vitals. And now I'm in an hysterical mess. And she wraps me in her big arms I've never been held like that, I don't think, even since. That that was a, a, a very magical, magical moment. And then she later told me that this happens, that electronics stopped working for the, the few minutes um, after a person dies, while they're dying, or certainly before they, after, right after they die, electronics stop working. I had the same experience with my mother, kind of something similar. So after that experience, I was like, okay, yes, this is my jam. I have found my niche. 
This is a space I can occupy. This is where I want to be. This is a mystery I'm interested in continuing to unfold um, the sacredness um, and the unique quality of the space. You know, there's nothing else like it in life. <laughs> you know, this death thing. So I was hooked. It took me a couple of years before I really made it into a profession, but people, my friends and family, would I'd be the person they'd call. Oh, so-and-so's dying. You know, let's get Oceana. So, um, in 2019, I sort of formally made that a thing that I could do. You know, as you were, as you were recounting that experience of being with your dad at the end of his life, I I was thinking about the conversation that keeps happening about what is a quote unquote good death. And to listen, I would think, oh, this is a stereotypical, what I would imagine is a good death, but there's so many factors that go into that. And I just wonder like, what's your take on that term and, and just on that conversation that's happening in the world? I would like to delete, 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 delete (laughs) this term, good death. First of all, you know, there's so many layers to this conversation about a good death. Um, And the first one that the, where the, the one that wants me to go delete, delete, delete is when I hear it. Typically, when I hear it, it's a white person talking about a good death for another white person. And the way it looks is a very particular way, you know, with the candles and the kumbaya moments. And um, the conversation in the death care community around a good death is typically happening with and for people with white bodies. You know, there are some factors. Um, There was a, I want to say the University of Colorado, one of their medical centers, actually did a survey of the literature to put together all what they considered to be the factors around a good death. There's about 12 points. And half of these points, at least, have to do with having a good relationship with the medical system in order to get your, you know, the, the right amount of um, palliative care, um, to, to be able to have a conversation around the treatment and the prognosis, to, to have conversations that where your needs, desires get expressed and they are honored, you know, it's... Much of that requires having a good relationship with the medical system. And the, the problem with a, this good death scenario that I keep hearing about is um, people of color don't get that relational respect in life. Maybe the, the biggest crime of all of racism is that you don't even get a break at the end of your life. It just kind of follows you from birth. If you're lucky, you get born. And the medical system doesn't kill you at childbirth, which is happens a lot. And your mother survives. Another amazing feat for people of color that you and your mother survive when you're born. 
And then you have a whole lifetime of medical care that is adversarial at best and actively trying to kill you at worst. Uh, and then you get down all the way to the end after you've endured all of that and you're still not being seen and not being respected and you die this way. I want to reframe a good death <laughs> in terms of what is the appropriate and respectful care that one can have as they end their life. So that's one piece. It's the, you get the care that is due you at the end. And then you have um, whatever family you want to have and not anything extra. This is the conversation I have with clients from time to time is let's be clear on who you want to have at the, at your bedside at the end, because you don't have to have uncle Bob, you know, that's what the doula does. A doula intervenes on behalf of the client. Like, you know, maybe uncle Bob gets to peek in and say, love you. Goodbye. They get ushered out the door before they start any other silliness. <laughs> The vision, the goal of how this person wants to die is maintained. So a good death honestly comes down to you get the respectful care you deserve. Your wishes are honored, are known and honored. So that to me is what that can look like. And so my father, for an example, he said, I just want to party out. So that's what we did. He had a steak dinner when he arrived in hospice, which he couldn't eat, of course. I think he had one bite. And then he was, you know, not conscious. So we had the TV playing, which he loved in his life. And then we stopped the TV when it felt like it was time. And then we had on some jazz and then we had some chanting. And every step of the way, paying attention to him. Now, he didn't give us a lot to work with. But, you know, you just... Put your attention on them and you imagine what it is they might be wanting and you give that. That is a good death. And he was not in pain. He had adequate levels of painkillers as far as I could tell. You know, same with my mother. We, um, oh, yeah. Well, that was a little bit tricky with my mom. Because uh, my mother, my father died in Atlanta in a hospice that was mostly African-American people. My mother died in California in a um, largely um, white situation. So I had to really fight for her comfort. But we got there and she, you know, the, the AME minister came. There was music. There was preaching. There was story being told. My brother was there. I was there. The family called in, we put the phone next to her ear. You know, those are all elements of a good death where you have your family around that you want to have around and not much more. Oceana, you've also talked about how important it is and, and how committed you are to ensuring that end of life care is rooted in blackness and wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that. I feel like you touched a bit on it in terms of the which part of the good death we need to delete. Um, but I'm guessing there's more to say there too. 
Yeah, the thing is about that particular question is it could call for responses that are in the realm of this is how you be with black people when they're dying. And that's actually not really the case because, you know, black folks are not monoliths. Nobody is. Um, The point is, is to, as much as possible, be in some kind of communication with the person while they can still speak and um, see what it is that they want. And some of the things you can know, culturally speaking, you know, um, and some things will be particular to that person. There's not a formula, uh, unfortunately, but um, there are some cultural things that can be known. For instance, um, in my mother's case, I knew that she was going to want a minister and she was going to want an AME minister. That's just how she lived her life. She wasn't a church-going person, really, in her most of her adult life. But I'll tell you what, when she figured out that she was dying, this is before she got an actual diagnosis, by the way, when she figured out she was dying, she was going to Bible study. And that's what happens with people. They can be going along in their adult life appearing to be almost... Um, atheist uh, until they get to the end and then you are suddenly faced with hedging your bet (laughs) you know I don't really know what this is but let's just if I assume that there's a heaven and a hell I think I want to go to the heaven part so I think I'll start praying now and asking for some forgiveness or whatever it is your spiritual tradition is so and then and then actually more than that it's like when you're getting down to the end you're looking for things that are familiar, especially from your childhood. You know, things that are familiar and that bring you comfort. And certainly for my mother, that was, you know, the church. She sang in the church all the way up until she went to college. It wasn't a surprise to me that my mother reverted back to those early traditions that brought her comfort, you know, the church. So that's, I think those are the elements that I can think of that In other words, I guess what I want to say here is people with white bodies do not assume you know what are the elements for the good death for anybody else. It's tempting to do that because that's basically how, you know, you live. But this is an opportunity at the end of life. This is this is this is the opportunity where you can actually have a positive impact by simply being curious and respectful about what are the elements that would bring comfort and care to this particular person. And you won't know what they are, so you'll have to ask. And you might have to ask some other people who share that culture if they are no longer able to speak for themselves. I think that's uh, the big thing is to not make any assumptions, including knowing, assuming what you don't know. So we're talking in the summer of 2021 after, I don't know, 900 years of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's really only like (laughs) 17 months, but it feels like a really long time. And, you know, last summer there was huge outpouring of protests against social injustice and against racism. And then, then that stopped. And, 
so many things happening. And I'm just wondering, like for you in this moment, what are you currently grieving? Hmm. I'm grieving all the lives that we lost needlessly, just needlessly lost because of so many factors, but among them being the relentless, pervasive oppression of people. And not just black people, but brown people and people who are indigenous, old people, oh my God, right at the top, just all those, our elders, all the elders that were just lost right at the top, needlessly. And you could feel it. You could feel the sense of like almost disposability. Well, they've already had their life. Oh my God, it's just such cruel loss in this pandemic. So yeah, I'm grieving the losses that were unexpected. That's just like on a, a social level. For me personally, I am grieving the life that I had before the pandemic now, this is interesting because I would not want that life now, but I had something that felt good enough. And I lost so many friendships in um, the early days of the pandemic, just so many friendships and the racial, uh, the racial reckoning People that said that they loved me and yet could not understand why I was responding to the George Floyd, um, which it's funny to say it like that too, because when you just say his name like that, it makes it sound like that was one person and one incident and one bad apple of a cop. And it's, it's more like, it's just a, almost like a, a symbol, like a placeholder for just generations of that kind of treatment. And I want to be respectful to George because he gave his life so that we had this racial reckoning that we're, we're having. And I like the way you said it. There were marches last summer and now there's not. Yeah, I mean, you could almost see that company coming, but still, things are different oh, to whatever extent that they are. So those are the things I'm grieving. I'm grieving my the personal losses of a life that I had. I don't want it back, but still, I think it's useful to grieve those things because it's in the grieving, the acknowledging. You're not saying you want it back, but to acknowledge the loss is to make space 
for new life. I am deep into the grieving. I've embraced my grieving as many people who follow me know. I just feel like these times, 2020 and all that that was requires, at least for me, this metabolization of all of that loss and in the context of our systemic oppressions to heal all that enough that we have enough space to create something life-affirming. And I recommend, I, it's funny, I recorded this podcast for my Patreon community last week. One of the questions I answered from the community was, what can people with white bodies do to support the grieving process of people with bodies of color and culture? And my response was, and has always been, grieve, do your work. When I was talking with Karen Wyatt, this really came up actually, now, I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, was the best thing people with your, of European descent can do in this conversation around a good death for all people, and in particular people of color, is to grieve what it means for you to be in the spot you're in, in the system currently and historically because it's only in the grieving the really the deep grieving that you can find some new answers an actual way of being with people of color in the dying because otherwise all you're doing is performing and we all know that (laughs) you know you're not fooling anybody i doubt you're fooling yourself But nobody's being fooled and it's better to not even have you in the space in your performative manner than to be there not fully. And you can be. You can be. See, that's the thing. People, I hear this all the time online and in discussions around, it feels endless. And it's not. It's just not. Of course, it's going to take nine generations to heal all of this. Yes, that's true. But you can start. And even in the starting is something. You know, people of color are in the same spot. It's going to take nine generations to heal all that trauma we've been enduring for for centuries. Um, But we're doing it. Some of us are doing it. And we're already seeing the benefits of that. And so if that's available for everyone, that's just available. And to grieve, to do that kind of grieving is to, in my mind, reclaim death. You know, if you want to create death-positive culture, well then go there. Go to go into your own experiences. Go into the parts of our history, your history, that are about death and dying and the needless death and the needless dying and what that means. All of it. That's how you get a really amazing life is you face death. People always say, 
you know, about death doulas. Oh, oh my God, this works. You're a death doula. Oh, it must be so hard, so heavy. Are you always on the sad place? No. Well, yes. But also no, um, because the only reason to do it is to have that experience on the other side of someone dying. This gratitude, this deep gratitude for life. The acuity of the senses, in my experience, that shows up after someone has died is amazing. It's like an acid trip. It's so cool. This acuity of the senses, like I'm alive. Because your body is like, when you've been with somebody who's dying, your body kind of freaks out a little bit. Like, really? This is what a body's doing? No, no, no. You're supposed to be living. Take another breath. Go ahead. Do it. Take another breath. You can do it. You know, your body's cheerleading this other body that's dying. And then the body is no longer living. And then your body's like, ah, wow, I'm alive. This is cool. So I think I kind of wandered around a vast territory there and I'm done talking. (laughs) Well, for listeners who are now wanting to hear more of your wandering, and just your work and and everything, what's the best way for people to connect with you? I know you've got a really strong social media presence and a Patreon community, and how can people find you? (laughs) It's my strong social media presence. (laughs) My website, you know. um, But honestly, you know, now that you say it that way, the truth is, is almost everything I'm up to is on my Instagram, including the latest stuff I'm doing in the Patreon and whatever workshops I have coming up, you're going to find it through the, my, my Instagram feed. Yep. And I don't really have anything. I am cocooning for the summer. Yes, I am cocooning. I am doing deep, work of resting and wandering. You, you saw how I was wandering around the vast territory of my consciousness and I'm having the time of my life. Well, I know I'll put it in the show notes, but for listeners who are just tuning in and want to hear it, what's your uh, Instagram location? What's your address? Uh, Oceana End of Life Doula. It's long, but that's how you find me. My website is OceanaEndOfLifeDoula.com. My Facebook page is Oceana End of Life Doula. <laughs> My LinkedIn is Oceana Sawyer. You can hardly miss me. Okay, great. Well, Oceana, I really appreciate you taking um, a moment to come out of the cocoon to have this conversation with me for being patient with our technical difficulties and for sharing your personal experiences and your professional insights and just really great um, gems, as you mentioned them, for all of us uh, who are listening and who had this chance to have this conversation. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for holding the space for this particular conversation to come up and out into the the light of day. I don't think I've ever had this conversation out loud with anybody um, and it was being recorded. So kudos to you. 
Well, listeners out there, I thank you each and every time as well for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does, for reaching out to me and sharing with me um, what your takeaways are from the show. So if you do want to connect with me, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, is also where you'll find all of the resources from Dougie Center, as well as uh, all of our past Grief Out Loud episodes. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.